Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. skin your children and eat them. What does it mean? It's the truth. What's in this letter? It's the truth. George Washington was a cannibal. Michael, he was a fiend, a murderer, a child eater. He was also chosen to be father of our country and that image was more important than the actuality. History. Michael is myth. It's far more than a collection of names, dates, and places. It's a system of beliefs, and ultimately it says more about the people who bought into those beliefs than the actual historical participants themselves. We're taught school. George Washington, father of our country. Lincoln freed the slaves, and that, that's our lasting impression of them. In fact, we are who we are as a nation because of what we believe they were. something about historians, Michael. Historians. They're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in facts. They're not interested in teaching people what actually happened. No. They're far more concerned with perpetuating the lies that they were sworn to defend. They're very much like politicians in that regard. I want to show you something. You know, it's a very exclusive club. Those people that know the real reasons that we fought our wars, what actually happened behind closed doors of our world leaders. Very exclusive club. And they want to keep it exclusive. But there are those of us that are altruist people like myself who want to learn and share what we learned. But Michael, the majority of historians they're nothing but PR people for the past. Now, Americans wanted to believe that George Washington was a great man. They wanted him to be father of our country, needed him to be father of our country, and so, for that reason, they were only too happy to believe what we historians told them. Boston was not the gentle, kind old man that we put him up to be. He was a monster. 
Hey guys, CJ here, finally back from my Appalachian visiting relatives adventure and finally able to put together the next episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is episode 66, Revolutionary Aftershocks Part 2, The Whiskey Rebellion. And I'm sure you're wondering, what the hell was that clip that I just played at the beginning of the show, unless you've already seen where I got it from. That clip was from an episode of the TV series Masters of Horror entitled The Washingtonians. And the main person you heard speaking there was the great character actor, Saul Rubinek. And he's one of those guys, one of those just top character actors that you see in so many uh, TV shows and films and things whose name very few people know, but who most people who watch a lot of TV and movies will instantly know him from a bunch of different places. And in this episode of Masters of Horror, Saul Rubinek plays an honest historian who helps save the day. Now, the basic premise of the Washingtonians is that a guy happens to stumble across evidence that George Washington not only wasn't a great guy, but he was actually a murderer and a cannibal. And then um, this guy gets the evidence verified and he finds out that, yes, this is true and that there's this whole uh, conspiracy to keep that part of the story a secret from the American people. And there and, and there's a whole secret society dedicated to protecting the official image of George Washington and so on. And I won't go further than that. I don't want to spoil the plot for you. I'd encourage you to go check it out. This Masters of Horror episode is pretty good, but it's based on a short story entitled also The Washingtonians by the horror author Bentley Little. And the story itself is, in my opinion, a lot better for a variety of reasons, including the uh, Masters of Horror adaptation is a bit on the campy side, I think deliberately so, but still. Whereas the um, the Bentley Little short story on which it's based is largely playing it straight is is just sort of, you know, dark satire, but not really campy. And also the Bentley Little short story has, I think, a, a much better ending than the film adaptation. Nonetheless, both are still worth checking out. I just happen to think the story's a bit better. The story, by the way, can be found in a collection of short stories by Bentley Little entitled, creatively, The Collection. And that's a, a book I'll put in the show notes as one of my Amazon links for this episode. Um, also, the Masters of Horror episode on Amazon as well. And if you're into horror, especially horror that has some social satire in it, both I think are worth checking out. And Bentley Little is one of these horror writers that um, I often like, especially when he's doing things like in The Washingtonians, where he's using horror to exaggerate and make a, a point, a sort of social satire and social commentary point. Bentley Little seems to have kind of two types of novels and short stories that he writes. On the one hand, he has things like the story of the Washingtonians or uh, a novel like, for example, The Store, which I also like very much where he's um, really using horror to do social commentary, you know, sort of like the, the John Carpenter film, They Live, that kind of stuff, where it's sort of dark humor and satire, you know, exaggerating things in order to illustrate dark aspects of our society or of our history. And then Bentley Little has other, other novels and short stories I don't like as much that are more just kind of, you know, typical horror genre stuff that, you know, to me anyway, are just not as interesting. But stories like this by him, I do like very much. In fact, this is his intro in the collection to this short story. Quote, During the Gulf War, and he's talking about the original Gulf War in the 90s, 
I was amazed at the public's mass acceptance of the government's view of events. Something like 120,000 Iraqis were killed, not all of them soldiers or Husseins in training, many of them ordinary men, women, and children who happened to be living in the same geographical area in which we were dropping bombs. But the news was controlled, information filtered through official government press conferences, and on TV we saw no bodies, no blood. So people believed what they were told. I got to thinking about what it would be like if all our history was like that, if what we learned in school was simply the party line, not the actual truth. The Washingtonians grew from there. End quote. So obviously this story has a lot of special resonance for me as an historian, as somebody who likes to dig into, find out, and then share the dark truths about history that are oftentimes ignored or minimized or just not mentioned at all or what have you. Great story and probably also somewhat of an influence on my decision to start the Dangerous History podcast, even though I don't think I was thinking about it at the time, but I first read this story uh, many years ago. I'll just read you one more quick excerpt from the story, and this is a scene. It's it's sort of one of the scenes in the story that inspired the scene that I played you the clip from before, where uh, the guy named Mike, who first you know discovers this evidence of Washington being a murderer and a cannibal, meets with a professor named Harkinson, which is the guy who's being portrayed by Saul Rubinek in the Masters of Horror episode, and they've just had um, a conversation very similar, um, contains even some of the same lines as, as what I played at the start of the episode, and then um, Harkinson has just finished talking about this stuff, and Mike has a reaction, quote, Mike stared at Harkinson, then looked away toward the rows of history books on the professor's shelves. These were the men who had really determined our country's course, he realized. The historians... They had altered the past and affected the future. It was not the great men who shaped the world. It was the men who told of the great men who shaped the world. End quote. So again, interesting story. And I think it's you know pretty obvious what relevance this has, both to some of my recent episodes and also to this one as well. So without further ado, let's start moving into Revolutionary Aftershocks Part 2. Now, if you haven't already, I recommend you listen to last episode, which was number 65, Revolutionary Aftershocks Part 1, Shay's Rebellion, for the larger context in which I'm placing these two rebellions that took place after the American Revolution. And for that matter, I think you might want to listen to my six-part miniseries on the Revolutionary War, if you haven't already, in order to understand what it is that Shay's Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion are epilogues or aftershocks too. Because as you might expect, if you know anything about this podcast, my take on the American Revolution itself was quite different from the standard mainstream narrative and challenged all kinds of sacred cows and mythologies. But um, to sum up for those of you who haven't, or perhaps even if you have listened to these things, but it's been a few weeks, um, I argued that the American Revolution was only really partially a revolution and that the writing and ratification of the Constitution and then the coming to power of the George Washington administration uh, w- with those things, whatever revolution in the sense, the true sense of the word there had been had reached its thermidor, which Thermidor, if you'll recall, is a point at which a revolution's um, revolutionary aspects get 
stopped and more conservative or even kind of reactionary elements take over and oftentimes begin to behave in very similar fashions to how the old regime used to that the revolution had risen up against in the first place. So again, as frequently happens, when a revolution reaches its thermidor, not everyone is happy. Many people who took the uh, rhetoric and the ideology of the revolution at face value, um, particularly people at the low end of the socioeconomic scale who were part of the revolution and who thought that the revolution was going to make things more fair and, and you know, more amenable to their interests and their perspective than the old regime. Many of these sorts of people, the lower rank and file revolutionaries, are not happy to see a new boss replace the old boss and have the new boss acting not a whole lot different from the old boss. In other words, people who thought the revolution was supposed to be about liberation of people who were oppressed by the old regime, they're often bitterly disappointed when their new elites start acting a hell of a lot like the old elites, and in some cases, in some respects, even worse, um, these old elites that they just overthrown and gotten rid of. And this is not unique to the American Revolution. You can see it happening, as far as I know, in pretty much every uh, political revolution that's worthy of the label. And in this situation where a revolution is reaching its thermidor, and the more reactionary conservative elements are starting to take over and impose their new version of order. Rebellions frequently occur in, in these circumstances. And the elites, the, the new elites who took over as a result of the revolution, often crack down brutally and show themselves to be little different and in some instances worse than the old elites. Now, in the case of the aftermath of the American Revolution, of course, the two largest aftershock rebellions, these, you know, pushing back against Thermidor as it's unfolding, were Shays Rebellion covered last episode and, of course, the Whiskey Rebellion that we're covering in this episode. While there are lots of history books that mention the Whiskey Rebellion, relatively few have been written devoted just to the Whiskey Rebellion, just to that subject alone. And my favorite and my main source, not my only source, but my main source and the one from which I'll be quoting the most in this episode is entitled The Whiskey Rebellion, Frontier Epilogue to the American Revolution by the historian Thomas P. Slaughter. This is a very respectable mainstream academic book. This is a great book on this topic if you want more detail than I'm going over here, vastly more detail than I'm going over here. Uh, that's, a, that's a great book. That would be the first place I would recommend. Slaughter is an above-average writer, I think, for an academic historian, and um, it's quite a, a comprehensive book. It even talks about the long-term uh, roots of anti-excise tax sentiment in Britain and throughout colonial and revolu revolutionary history um, in America, and then gets into the specifics of the whiskey tax and the context of what was going on in the Western frontier and goes all the way through the whole story. Now, Slaughter primarily frames the story of the Whiskey Rebellion through the lens of what he calls the Friends of Order, which are basically the Federalists, uh, who are mostly wealthy elitists, who favored a large, powerful, centralized government, and who thought that law and order were more important than freedom. And then the Friends of Liberty, who are the people who favor a much more limited and decentralized government, and who think that um, a certain amount of disorder is tolerable or even preferable to excessive order because 
liberty and a little bit of disorder are kind of, you know, handmaidens. And you go back to the last episode where I, I read and talked about the famous Thomas Jefferson quote about the tree of liberty needing to be refreshed with the blood of patriots and tyrants and, and the context of that and what he was really talking about. Now, both of these uh, camps in American politics and in American public discourse during the period of the Whiskey Rebellion, both of them would say that they both valued liberty and order, but obviously in practice, they didn't value them equally. So this is a very important story. Many Americans have heard of the Whiskey Rebellion, but very few know the whole story or even remotely the whole story, even though it was the largest instance of full-on resistance to the U.S. federal government from the time of the ratification of the Constitution until the not-so-civil war in the 1860s. So before getting into the specifics of the excise tax and the resistance against it in the 1790s, we'll talk a little bit about what an excise tax is and about, uh, briefly, the history of uh, anti-excise tax sentiment in you know, kind of the Anglo-American world. And this is something, again, for a lot more detail, read Thomas Slaughter's book. Now, an excise tax is a tax that is levied by a government on the production or the sale of a specific good inside of a country. And in practice, it doesn't really matter whether the tax is formally laid on the production or the sale of the item, because ultimately, um, either way, it's the consumer who ends up paying the tax, even if it's on producing the good, not on selling the good. The fact of the matter is whoever's selling the good in question is going to build the tax into the price of the item. You know, the tax might nominally formally be paid to the government by the producer of the good. But in reality, it's really paid by the consumer because it ends up being built into the final price of the item that the consumer pays when he buys it. So, of course, there are many uh, modern examples that you might not even know about. Some of them you might know about, but not really see or think about on a daily basis. Some of them you might be oblivious to. There are tons and tons of items in the United States, and I'm sure in most of the world, that when you buy them, there's an invisible tax, not just the formal sales tax that might be you know, visible on your receipt, but just you know, additional charges, excise taxes, essentially built into the item that mean that when you buy it, you pay more than you otherwise would have. You know, gas is probably uh, gasoline, probably the most well-known example of this in in the current uh, in, in most countries currently, where when you buy a gallon of gas or a liter of gas, depending on what country you're in, a significant percentage of what you actually pay at the gas station is actually just taxes. So anti-excise tax sentiment goes way back into colonial American history and beyond that even further back to the history of the British Isles, at least as far back as the 17th century, if not even earlier. And nonviolent resistance to these sorts of taxes, meaning, you know, tax avoidance and things like that, were very common, as were uh, periodic incidents of violent resistance, taking the form of things like rioting, attacking the actual tax collectors and their property and so on. Excise taxes were often seen in the 17th and 18th century as the most invasive and rights-violating form of taxation. Of course, uh, the income tax wasn't really there yet. It um, came in in Britain, I think, during the Napoleonic Wars. Property taxes and 
tariffs on imports coming into a country were more frequently seen by uh, British and American people as acceptable, um, except, of course, to the wealthy landlords and the merchants who would be the ones most affected by property taxes and by tariffs, which might explain why the British government was shifting more and more to excise taxes to raise revenue during the 18th century, um, because it was it was less specifically angering to the wealthy elites who tended to be um, landlords primarily and to a lesser extent merchants. In the British Isles, excise taxes were much more readily accepted and submitted to by those who lived in urban England, especially in and around London, and were much more uh, controversial to and much more likely to be resisted by those who lived in the more uh, rural fringes of England and uh, to an even greater degree those who lived in places like Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. By the way, not coincidentally, a high percentage of those who populated the backcountry frontier areas of America in the late 18th century were descendants of colonists who came from precisely those parts of the British Isles, the more backcountry parts of England and the so-called Celtic fringe, um, as as it's sometimes called by historians, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. And in British North America, particularly by the mid to late 18th century, excise taxes were often referred to under sort of the umbrella term of internal taxes and were despised as antithetical to freedom. And one, when one looks at the events, all of the tensions and demonstrations and, and uproars and riots in the 1760s and 70s that led up to the American Revolution – you see very obviously that the taxes that caused the most uproar and outrage and resistance were always the taxes that were um, excise taxes or some other type of internal tax, something like the stamp tax, for example. And the taxes that were more in the form of tariffs were much less controversial and oftentimes saw little or no resistance. Now, not only were excise taxes favored by the state itself, and by those in favor of big government in general, for whatever reason, they were also oftentimes favored by large-scale producers of whatever good in question that's going to be taxed, because what would usually happen in Britain, and then what did happen in America in the case of the whiskey tax, is that the larger producers are favored because the state will give them what essentially amounts to a bulk discount on paying the tax. So this is why both in Britain and in America in the 18th century, major distillers often were quite happy with taxes on distilling liquor, because in practice what would happen is they were able to pay a flat fee or something along those lines, like per year, whereas... um smaller distillers would have to pay a much higher fee of of a per gallon fee that meant a much higher tax on each gallon of whiskey they produced. So in practice, of course, this disproportionately hobbled the smaller producers in the marketplace as the smaller producer would have to, in practice, pay a higher tax rate and then, of course, would have no choice but to pass that on to his consumers. So, in other words, like so many government taxes and regulations, even if it does cut into all businesses in a given industry, it ends up privileging the larger firms because while it imposes costs on all firms, it disproportionately affects the smaller, less politically connected ones. And we see that again and again and again and again. 
and check out Gabriel Kolko's book, The Triumph of Conservatism, for examples of this happening in the early 20th century so-called progressive era in American history. And the fact that excise taxes would oftentimes require lots of tax inspectors with sweeping powers to uh, search people and places of business and, and homes and so on always made them uh, additionally controversial in ways that other less intrusive forms of taxes might not be. So let's talk a bit about how this excise tax on whiskey came about in the early United States. First off, the vaunted Federal Constitution of 1787 gave the federal government the power to levy both internal taxes, such as excise taxes, and external taxes, such as tariffs. As historian Thomas Slaughter puts it, quote, the taxing authority of the proposed national government would be no less than and was certainly designed to be even greater than anything attempted by the British government during the 1760s and 1770s. End quote. And during the debates over ratification of the Constitution, of course, uh, the Anti-Federalists objected to the Constitution on a variety of grounds, and they uh, one of the many things they objected to about the Constitution was that they worried that the sweeping taxing powers granted to the federal government would lead to all kinds of negative consequences, particularly for liberty. So, for example, the Anti-Federalists predicted, uh, accurately it turned out, that by granting the federal government the power to levy internal taxes, you would get a bunch of bad developments flowing in succession from this. So you give them the power to levy internal taxes, and inevitably you're going to end up with lots of internal taxes. And that, of course, is going to lead to lots of collectors and enforcers to make sure the taxes are collected. And, of course, because these... Uh, many new and intrusive taxes would likely cause popular resistance. Eventually, you're going to need massive armed force in order to crush and cow and uh, intimidate into submission any popular resistance. So the, the Anti-Federalists saw this coming uh, during you know the late 1780s when the Constitution was being ratified. And furthermore, the Anti-Federalists, many of whom, not surprisingly, later opposed the whiskey tax and sympathized at least to some degree with the rebels, the Anti-Federalists pointed out that by having a distant central government levying internal taxes, in practice, what you had was taxes being levied on people by politicians who didn't really represent them. Uh, you know, didn't really represent the interests or wishes of these remote frontier populations in the case of the whiskey tax. And that in practice, whatever you might say about, oh, well, you know, nominally these places have congressmen or whatever. In reality, a lot of these frontier people out, out in the uh, boondocks would feel with some justification that they were facing taxation without representation. Thomas Slaughter says that to this group, quote, it made little difference that the central government after 1787 would be managed by elected Americans rather than British politicians over whom they had virtually no influence. The problems of representation remained largely the same, whether elected or not, men who shared no sympathy for the needs of some regions could not represent their constituents accurately enough to tax them, end quote. 
Now, in order to counter these warnings on the part of the anti-federalists, um, during the debate over ratification of the Constitution, the Federalists, including Alexander Hamilton himself, who later plays probably the key role in the Whiskey uh, Rebellion, answered these objections by saying that internal taxes would only be levied by the federal government as a very last temporary resort in a dire emergency. So, for example, in Federalist Number 12, Alexander Hamilton specifically argued that the federal government should and would rely only on external taxes for funding um, other than an extreme emergency. And he wrote, quote, the genius of the people will ill brook the inquisitive and peremptory spirit of excise laws, end quote. So he's basically saying yeah, don't worry about giving this power to the federal government because they probably won't even use it anyway, except as a last-ditch emergency measure. But of course, like so many powers, the Federalists claimed would only be exercised by the new federal government in a rare extreme emergency, usage of these excise taxes would very quickly become standard operating procedure. Now, once the Constitution was passed and Washington was in as president and Hamilton was in as Treasury Secretary, one of Hamilton's first big projects was getting what was known as assumption, which meant getting the federal government to assume all the remaining state revolutionary war debts um, in order, in essence, to make state debts now federal debts. Now, of course, to fund that type of a project you need a lot of federal taxes. And Hamilton was always in favor of virtually as much taxes as were logistically uh, feasible. Now, what Hamilton wanted to do was to have the federal government pretty much have a permanent and relatively large national debt as a method by which to get the wealthy elite all on the side of big government. And so he wanted to make sure that government bonds were paid off at, at full value, at par. This would encourage wealthy people to buy lots of government bonds in the future. And the more wealthy elite type people own government debt, in other words, are invested in government debt, the more wealthy elite type people will always favor the notion of big government and lots of taxes. So Hamilton's project, that of getting government bonds, which were overwhelmingly held by the financial elite, paid off in full by taxing everyone, including poor people, was a totally deliberate attempt, and a highly successful one, of course, to weld the interests of America's financial elite, which already was in existence, to the cause of creating and maintaining a very powerful centralized government. So the wealthy, whose opinions always count more than anyone else, are going to like the idea of big government and lots of tax collectors and, you know, draconian enforcement of taxes, because a big chunk of where those taxes will go are to funding the national debt, which the wealthy owns. And of course, by the way, this continues to this day, this form of welfare to the wealthy. The government runs up debt, which is mostly owned by wealthy elites, and then taxes everyone to pay that. It's a form of, in practice, net wealth redistribution from the middle and, and in many ways the lower classes even to those who are already wealthy. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer, but it's not, in this instance, at all the result of free market forces. Instead, it's the result of mercantilist policies on the part of the state. 
Now, Hamilton succeeded in getting tariffs jacked up, but it didn't bring in enough revenue to fund his assumption plan, so he very quickly hit on excise taxes as a source of additional revenue. And again, this is literally just a couple of years after he said on the record that anti-federalists should not worry about internal taxes, such as excise taxes, because the federal government would only use them in the case of an extreme dire emergency. So, like so many other Federalists, when he was arguing in favor of the Constitution, he wasn't even doing so in good faith. He was making arguments that he himself knew uh, to be false and that he himself had no intention of actually, um, you know, sticking to once the Constitution was ratified. Now, Hamilton first proposed uh, an excise tax on whiskey in 1790. And many in Congress, especially from Pennsylvania and the South, um, especially from the backcountry areas of, of those places, uh, bitterly opposed it, but the Eastern and New England members of the Congress supported it, and it eventually passed in 1791. By the way, one of the groups that Hamilton appealed to uh, for, for allies and did so successfully, besides just those with a financial interest in having you know big government and more taxes, were the already there kind of morality police type groups. Hamilton made the sin tax argument. He made the argument that this tax not only will help the government get money, it will also do good for the poor because it'll cause them to decrease their consumption of of vice, their consumption of whiskey. And uh, many pastors and other kind of do-gooders, such as some doctor's organizations, uh, got on board and supported the whiskey tax for this reason. And this is a great example from very early in American history of that frequent alliance I talked about back in episode 57, that alliance of banksters and control freaks. The banksters want the whiskey tax uh, to get, you know, payments on their on their bonds that they own. And the control freaks want the whiskey tax because they believe that it'll reduce drinking of hard liquor. Of course, the funny thing about the sin tax argument, which you still hear today, you know, the taxes on cigarettes and so on, is that in order for the tax to be successful in the purpose of generating government revenue, it has to be unsuccessful at significantly curtailing whatever vice or behavior the tax is being levied on, right? I mean, if the if the tax on cigarettes actually led to everybody quitting smoking, um, then it would fail in the purpose of bringing the government revenue. So you have this weird thing where they can't really want the vice to decrease too much because then they'll lose too much revenue. Well, once the tax was in place and tax collectors started to be appointed and so on, resistance, including eventually genuine violence, erupted throughout many areas of the so-called backcountry, meaning the frontier areas in and around and west of the Appalachians. Particularly significant were the backcountry areas of Virginia, Kentucky, and North Carolina. In fact... Kentucky and North Carolina actually resisted the tax more successfully than did Western Pennsylvania, which is the area where the government eventually uses military force. And in fact, at first, Hamilton wanted to make North Carolina the place for the federal government to go in and kick ass and flex its muscles, its muscles and assert its authority. But he ended up being persuaded by some people that Western Pennsylvania would actually be a better place to make into the example, not because it was resisting the tax any more uh, than North Carolina or Kentucky, but because North Carolina or Kentucky would be a lot harder to actually crush than would Western Pennsylvania be. In other words, Western Pennsylvania was chosen not because it was violating the tax more. There were other places that were probably doing even more than they were to violate the tax. Western Pennsylvania was ultimately selected 
as the target because it was a weaker target that could be crushed more easily. Other areas of the backcountry might fight back more effectively. That's interesting as well. Sort of like the cop, instead of going after like the real hardcore gang where, you know, that might, they might actually shoot at the cop or something like that. Instead, he's going after, you know, jaywalkers and, and, um, you know, a kid smoking a joint in a park or whatever. Now you have to understand many people, including historians often tend to see antebellum American regionalism and regional conflict in the political arena as being always North versus South, but actually prior to the 1840s, East versus West regional conflict and tension was just as significant and in some cases more so. You know, one could argue, for example, that in the 1790s and into the early 19th century, a backcountry resident of North Carolina had far more in common with a backcountry resident of Pennsylvania in terms of his, um, you know, socioeconomic situation and his political preferences than either of those two would have had with the coastal populations of their own state. So, I think it's no stretch at all to say that in the late 18th and early 19th century, the federal government was, for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways, overwhelmingly geared towards the interests of the eastern coastal elite of both the North and the South to the detriment of the interests of the West, the more frontier areas. So facing a distant often heavy-handed government that didn't seem to represent their interests at all, is it really surprising that many Westerners, many disgruntled Westerners, looked at the federal government in the same light that Americans in the 1760s and 70s had looked at the British government? I mean, it's an almost perfect analog, right? Is it really surprising that when push came to shove, many of these frontier people explicitly espousing the ideals of the American Revolution were willing to try to resist? If the Sons of Liberty were right in resisting Parliament's efforts to tax them in the 1760s, then can we really say that the Whiskey Rebels of the 1790s were somehow evil traitors? And what's more important, your loyalty to a political system or your loyalty to your ideals and principles? Now, in the 1790s, these... Westerners out on the frontier were obviously angry about the new whiskey tax, and we'll talk about some of the details why it pissed them off in particular in a moment. But you have to understand, and we'll get into some of this, the whiskey tax itself wasn't their only grievance. In fact, to many of them, it seems to have just been the, per- the proverbial um, last straw. So why this tax in particular was so hated in the Western United States at the time, well, besides the pre-existing Anglo-American antipathy towards excise taxes i've already mentioned before this tax hit on a commodity whiskey that was absolutely vital to the economic survival of many poor western farmers whiskey was one of the few things they could make with their excess grain that had any decent amount of value and it was much more portable and much more easily stored and transported than huge piles of grain This was like their cash crop to these poor farmers on the Western frontier. And they felt like, hey, wait a minute, you're going to throw a tax on our one little cash crop that helps us scrape by out here where most people are making basically a subsistence living. You're going to throw a tax on that one cash crop we have, and you're not going to throw a tax on, I don't know, tobacco in the East. And the tax was to be paid in specie, in hard money, in gold or silver. There was such a shortage 
of specie in the frontier areas that in fact whiskey often functioned as money it was a barter item that was so commonly accepted that it essentially was money in a lot of places so to now levy a tax that had to be paid in hard money which few people even had and which was hard to even come by in the west levy a tax to be paid in hard money on a commodity that was used by brutally poor people as money that just seemed cruel to them, and I think you know it does to me as well, and perhaps to you too. And certainly the people in the crosshairs of this tax thought it was, it was cruel and unfair. In essence, in these frontier areas where whiskey virtually functioned as money, the whiskey tax functioned as an income tax. And it was sort of like an income tax that the other parts of the country where whiskey didn't function as money, um, those parts of the country kind of didn't have to pay. In, in a lot of these areas, class antagonism clearly mixed with the regional antagonism because a lot of the land in these areas, especially the good land was in the hands of wealthy speculators, many times absentee Eastern uh, plutocrats and also other failures on the part of the federal government to address the problems out West. A lot of people just felt like they were just overall being treated unfairly in a variety of ways. The, the residents of the frontier areas, many of them had been lured to the frontier areas by outright lies and false advertising peddled by wealthy eastern speculators in the first place pamphlets were distributed in some of the eastern cities and even all the way in europe trying to get people to come out and settle on the frontier and these pamphlets grossly exaggerated the opportunities available to poor people on the frontier and they neglected to mention the bad stuff like i don't know brutal indian wars and the lack of access to markets for produce, uh, largely due to the Spanish control of Louisiana and the vital port of New Orleans. And they were preventing American farmers in the West from, from being able to use the Mississippi River and use New Orleans. Um, or the pamphlets also left out the fact that wealthy speculators had already gobbled up most of the good land. And so these very wealthy speculators who want people to go out there and work on their on their estates out West, they're luring poor people out there with all this uh, all these lies. And when these poor people get out there, they find out, Oh, there's almost no opportunity. And, um, the same guys who lured us here with their pamphlets actually own all the good land. And now we basically kind of have no choice, but to be a laborer on their estates if we want any kind of work at all. And as the 1780s and nineties went on in terms of time, the, um, standard of living and, and quality of life of a lot of these Western frontier settlers, uh, actually kept gradually getting worse. So for example, in 1780, over a third of the residents of Western Pennsylvania owned absolutely no land whatsoever. And that proportion continued to increase over the course of the decade until by 1790, just before the whiskey tax was implemented in some Western counties of Pennsylvania, a majority of people owned no land. And I think in one or two counties, it was in the neighborhood of 60% of the people were landless. This, despite the massive amount of land in the area, now, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because there was nothing really resembling homesteading. Instead, what would happen is that plutocrat speculators would, quote unquote, buy land from the government in huge pieces. So if you were politically connected, if you were educated, if you had access to good uh, lawyers and things like that and, um, you know, could could pay the fees, could do what needs to be done to get the correct titles and, and forms and whatever, you could end up with claim to thousands of acres backed by the state. But if you're the poor son of a bitch who actually goes out to the frontier, 
finds the land that at least appears to be unowned and not used or occupied right now. And you brave the elements and the Indian threat and you work your ass off to do something productive with that land. You might end up being evicted by some Eastern oligarch whose name you might not even recognize, who may not have ever even seen this land uh, that's supposedly his once, if ever. And that guy or his representatives might show up one day and, and call you a squatter and tell you you have to get the hell off his land. Again, Eastern oligarchs who lived hundreds of miles away, oftentimes owned in, in a legal formal sense, um, much of the best land. And the small number of local, you know, Western affluent people tended, of course, to dominate the local government institutions. So guess whose interests the sheriffs and the courts out on the ground in the frontier always tended to favor, right? As historian Thomas Slaughter sums it up, quote, nothing like the mythical classless frontier society ever existed in the Western country, end quote. And of course, from the uh, poor people, many of whom would become rebels from their perspective out in the West, not only are things very unfair from a, from an economic standpoint, but the federal government is now with the whiskey tax forcing these impoverished people to pay through the nose for a distant government that was doing precious little at the time to actually alleviate any of their problems. And the two main problems that Westerners were concerned about, and which the federal government at the time wasn't doing much about, were hostile Indians and the navigation of the Mississippi River. In the case of the hostile Indians, it was brutal stuff. We're talking, you know, Indians would come in and kill and mutilate men, women, children, and infants. And, you know, you can point out that, hey, these settlers may have been trespassing into Indian territory in the first place. And in some cases, I'm sure that was true. And I would agree that from like a big picture bird's eye perspective, you know, that a lot of that land should have been Indian land by right. I'm not questioning that one bit. My point is, if you're the poor frontier settler who's ended up in this place and now Indians are coming in and like hacking your wife and kids to death and scalping them in front of you, like you might be thinking, hey, where's some army? Where, where's some troops from that new federal government to come, you know, take care of this? And they weren't doing very much. The federal government tried, but it was never nearly enough in the years before the Whiskey Rebellion to quell the more violent Indian tribes. Um, they always tended to send out a, a, a little army that was not big enough to deal with the problem, that wasn't properly trained and prepared, and then the Indians would uh, kick their ass. And, and that was when they even sent anybody at all, which a lot of times they didn't. So you have to understand the frontier was a place of crushing poverty and constant threat of just horrific violence. You read some of the accounts of you know, the massacres taking place. And the federal government saying, hey, you've got to pay up taxes. And um, that same federal government is, is not addressing, you know, your basic concerns, right? They say one of the main reasons they're there is to protect you, right? Well, they ain't doing it. And then you've got the problems with Spain regarding access and navigation of the Mississippi River, right? The central government had from 1780 onward, including both the, the um, Articles of Confederation government and then the new federal government under the Constitution, it had been quite unwilling to really try to press this issue with Spain, which was at the time in control of Louisiana and New Orleans. Because the eastern elites who controlled the central government just didn't see it as a priority. But to Westerners, it was economically vital to them having any decent standard of living or prosperity at all, that they needed access to the Mississippi River, and the federal government just wasn't really doing much. So again, you've got people in a, in a, in a very desperate situation out there 
you got a federal government that's not addressing their problems, but that wants them to pay huge amounts of money, um, in large part to to pay interest to wealthy bondholders. And at this point, I think it's it's worthwhile to mention briefly the relationship between George Washington and the Western frontier areas during his life, because his attitudes towards the West and towards Westerners and his personal real estate interests in the West were absolutely crucial to understanding and explaining how he dealt with the West as president. George Washington had a long personal history with the backcountry, especially the backcountry of of uh, Virginia and Pennsylvania. He loved the land and had an apparently just endless amount of covetousness for it, but he absolutely despised the residents of the frontiers being these disgusting, ignorant, dirty people and so on. And of course, many of them really were disgusting, ignorant, dirty people to the perspective of a, you know, well-groomed, um, wealthier person who had decent hygiene. But they probably weren't choosing to live um, a, a dirty, nasty lifestyle. I think it was the fact that they were crushingly poor. And I'd say, you know, read Chapter 5 of The Whiskey Rebellion by Thomas Slaughter if you want a very detailed amount of information on much of George Washington's real estate schemes out West, both before, during, and after the American Revolution. This was a guy who was willing to ruthlessly use any means necessary, including lots and lots of um, government power in order to basically accomplish private gain in order to accumulate huge amounts of land. And I will also in the show notes for this episode at profcj.org, I will link to again, something I, I linked to previously, Stephen Molyneux's relatively recent presentation, the truth about George Washington. I'll link to it on YouTube. Of course, you can also find it audio only on his website. I'm sure. And this is a this is a very sound historical presentation. Most of what he says here, I definitely can vouch for from my own research. You know, there's a few things he mentioned that I didn't know, but, you know, especially in regards to a lot of Washington's land schemes, that's another place you can get more detail. But again, if he's if you're not a Molyneux fan, if he's too out of the mainstream for you, then again, the very respectable, very mainstream academic book, The Whiskey Rebellion by Thomas Slaughter, especially chapter five, validates a lot of the dirt on Washington in terms of his using the state in order to make and enforce real estate claims before and after the American Revolution. This chapter also deals with a lot of Washington's feelings about the West, especially how much he loved the land and, and had this just, you know, absolutely hunger for Western land, but despised the area's residents and settlers. Um, plenty of other mainstream history books have revealed a lot of Washington's real estate shenanigans, too. These things just rarely get talked about in popular history books and in popular history uh, shows. So, again, when uh, Bentley Little writes about Washington being a cannibal in The Washingtonians, well, obviously he's exaggerating in order to make it into a horror story and to make it kind of a dark, you know, comedy satire thing. But the reality is that Washington and so many other supposedly great men of history have, um, you know, just been just been whitewashed. It's just more deification of the great man. I mean, this was a guy who ended up, quote unquote, owning 
because this is owning mostly by state decree, not by, you know, actually earning or homesteading something. This is a guy who ended up owning over 60,000 acres of trans Appalachian land. That's not counting, by the way, the tons of land he owned east of the Appalachians either. Six, over 60,000 acres of trans Appalachian land, none of which he purchased, as far as I know, from Indians or from the settlers who, in some cases, were actually living on it previously. Uh, most of this land he'd only ever even seen maybe once or twice, and his claim was just based on having filled out the proper paperwork in some distant capital. In fact, as Slaughter details in Chapter 5 of the Whiskey Rebellion, Washington often really stretched the laws regarding land acquisition in order to maximize his holdings, and yet when it came time to kick people off his land, he and others like him scrupulously used the law to its fullest extent to evict people. So as uh, Slaughter puts it, quote, Washington himself had prospered from his ability to evade the intentions of both Great Britain's proclamation line and Pennsylvania's and Virginia's land speculation laws. Once these legal ends were achieved, however, Washington and other like-minded entrepreneurs saw no inconsistency in branding intruding settlers as outlaws or in seeking strong government to enforce their claims, end quote. So that's, again, why I refer to these people as oligarchs and not just as affluent people or wealthy people. Um, They're oligarchs because a major, the major part of how they got and kept their wealth was manipulating state power against people who, because of lack of money and education and lack of access to power, could never hope to fight back effectively within the system that had been designed and was being run by the oligarchs themselves. And please understand, George Washington is just one of the largest and definitely the most famous of these eastern oligarchs who, quote unquote, owned massive amounts of land in the West. There were plenty of others. He's just, you know, this obvious glaring one that we were all told was this great altruistic guy who only ever cared about what was in the public good. So put yourself in the shoes of the poor frontier settlers in these areas. How would you feel towards guys like George Washington, people who were happy to deploy state violence to evict you from, quote-unquote, their lands. Even if you'd been living and working that land for years, and the supposed owner's only claim is some questionable piece of government paper uh, filed hundreds of miles away by people you've never even seen, and these landlords, these self-styled landlords, don't even live anywhere near these lands they want to keep you off of, or to, at at most, allow you onto to be their, their sort of serfs, their laborers. Again, I'm all about private property and the free market and so on, but that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is the state is being used by wealthy, powerful people to make themselves even wealthier, in this case, in in terms of real estate. And frankly, I I object to when Thomas Slaughter uses the term entrepreneurs, because I don't think somebody like George Washington could be uh, considered an entrepreneur in the true sense of the word. To me, an entrepreneur is a a fairly noble thing. An entrepreneur is somebody who goes out and and uh, works hard and works smart and comes up with goods and services and is successful that way. That's a, that's a true entrepreneur. Um, this is more of like what Burton Folsom in the myth of the robber barons calls a political entrepreneur, someone who uses the state to get and keep and increase their wealth. So I think by this point, you have a good idea of why a lot of Westerners, especially poorer Westerners, would be just full of anger and resentment at the federal government and at the Eastern oligarchs that largely ran it. 
But what about the um, point of view from the so-called nationalists, or as Thomas Slaughter refers to them, the friends of order? What were these people thinking as they started to um, face resistance to this excise tax when it started to happen? Well, these friends of order believed that the arguments that you find in documents such as the Declaration of Independence have absolutely no relevance for the case of disgruntled Westerners. They make this very, um, you know, formal legalistic argument that, well, we're the United States government, you're part of the United States, therefore we represent you, and since we represent you, you can't resist our laws. End of story. And they apparently have no sense of irony of how similar their arguments are to the arguments made by the British authorities in the 1760s and 70s. So they completely dismissed out of hand uh, the Westerners' appeal to the sentiments of things like the Declaration of Independence, and the Friends of Order also had very exaggerated fears of anarchy. In fact, there's not much evidence that very many Westerners, if any, really wanted anarchy. Um, I'm an anarchist, so I'd be the first to point it out if they really did. What they wanted... And what they tried for years was to get their grievances addressed uh, first for years by working through the system before they finally lost their shit and ended up some of them getting violent about it. You'll you'll try very hard and probably in vain to find any whiskey rebel expressing genuine anarchist sentiments. I'm sorry, it's not there. They weren't against government. They just wanted a government that in their eyes treated them more fairly and, and took their interests more to heart. But that's what you find, you know, the Federalists, the Friends of Order, always bringing up anarchy. Well, gee whiz, if we don't brutally, meticulously enforce every government decree, then um, it's just a matter of time until, you know, Lord of the Flies, everybody's running around in loincloths trying to spear and eat each other. In addition to greatly exaggerated fears of anarchy in general, there was the psychological effects of of the French Revolution. By the early 1790s, the French Revolution had started into its more bloody and radical phase, and many of the Eastern elite, especially those who were Federalists, saw any domestic resistance to any federal power as the beginning of Jacobinism in America. And so they thought, well, you've got to snuff it out right away with overwhelming force, or else next thing you know, it's going to be Jacobinism running things in the United States. There was also fear of foreign intrigue, and and here, to be fair, uh, some of it was definitely based on truth. There were worries about Spanish or British involvement in trying to stir up separatist sentiment on the frontier. And of course, remember that in the American Revolution, the revolutionary leaders had happily accepted foreign help. So if you're thinking, if you're still stuck somewhat in the nationalistic USA, USA mindset, And you're thinking, well, if these people did look for any help from other countries, that makes them traitors and they deserve to get what they wanted. Remember that during the American Revolution, the American rebels, those guys that later get called patriots, they actively sought and got the help of countries like France and Spain. And nobody looks back and says, look at that. They were being unpatriotic traitors by going and getting foreign help for their cause. Okay, so if the whiskey rebels... um, trying to get potential help from from outside for their cause is evil then it was also evil when you know john adams and ben franklin did that during the american revolution sorry i have a horrific allergy to double standards and hypocrisy just can't take it sorry so overall there was a lot of paranoia when you read a lot of the documents that uh, slaughter quotes from in his book 
where the friends of order are expressing their their fears and so on there's a lot of paranoia it's it, some of it's pretty whacked out some of it's justified from their point of view anyway if you if you take their their interests as your interests and you take their perspective as your perspective some of it's logical and justified from that point of view some of it was based on gross exaggerations or even outright falsities about what was really going on now thomas slaughter on the irreconcilable nature of the points of view of the two political camps in America at the time, what he calls the Friends of Liberty and the Friends of Order in the early uh, days of the Washington administration, writes this, quote, No compromise appeared imminent. No dialogue on revolution principles ever began. No indication of Eastern awakening to the desperate economic state of the frontier emerged. Unless mercantilist politicians acknowledge the validity of ideological principles emblazoned on the frontier intellect from the time of the Stamp Act crisis, no dialogue over the fundamentals of Republican rule could begin. Many Easterners had changed the way they thought about representation, taxation, and Republican rule. Many Westerners had not. End quote. So now that we've set the, sa- set the stage, let's talk a bit about the rebellion. Now, out of all the backcountry regions of the United States... You can make a strong case that Western Pennsylvania had fared the worst in terms of its economy, in terms of horrible attacks by Indians, and in terms of having huge amounts of land grabbed by politically connected Eastern speculators. So it's no surprise at all that um, Western Pennsylvania had a lot of anti-whiskey tax uh, people. And as in the case of Shays' Rebellion, many of the guys who ended up resisting the whiskey tax were Revolutionary War veterans who believed and very self-consciously said that they were just standing up for the true principles of the American Revolution. Resistance in frontier counties of Pennsylvania started off totally peacefully and fully within the system. They started off just sending petitions of grievances to Philadelphia, which is where the national capital was at the time. But that accomplished nothing. Neither Washington nor Hamilton were at all really interested in any compromises with angry Westerners. So when the failure of that strategy became blatantly obvious, they started to have meetings and assemblies, again, in a, in a manner very reminiscent of Shays' Rebellion and also very reminiscent of the resistance movements against the British, such as over the Stamp, Stamp Act, um, in the 1760s and 70s. So if having these meetings is horrible and traitorous, then the men of the First and Second Continental Congress were also horrible, evil evil traitors as well, right? In September of 1791, a convention met at Pittsburgh, which was the largest town in western Pennsylvania, and this convention was mostly dominated by the moderate opponents of the tax, who tended to be the more affluent members of the anti-tax, you know, movement, Right. So in general, the more affluent you were within the anti-tax group, the more likely you were to uh, you, you would be to advocate only working within the system, not doing anything violent and so on. And so under the guidance of these more moderate anti-tax leaders, this convention sends a petition of grievances to Philadelphia. And in May of 1792, some slight changes were made to the whiskey tax, including even a slight cut in the rate. But it wasn't nearly enough to satisfy the angry frontiersmen. And in fact, basically all of the modifications made to the tax were modifications that were suggested and supported by large eastern distillers 
whose complaints Hamilton actually listened to, unlike the complaints of Westerners. And so it didn't address very many of the things that were actually angering the people about this law. But even as nonviolent resistance was still the main method of resistance, violence was starting, and it tended to be the poorer people out West who leaned towards more radical ideas and more towards violence, whereas, again, the more affluent among the anti-excise movement tended to be those who wanted to avoid violence and work within the system as much as possible. Now, based on the evidence we have, it looks like, especially at this stage, the violent and nonviolent resistance movements were clearly separate groups of people not really teamed up and working together. But many high federal government officials, including Washington and Hamilton, didn't believe that at the time. They thought they thought this was top-down resistance. They thought the local elite of the West was stirring up the rabble, as they would have called it, um, against the federal government. In reality, it was the opposite. The, the uh, resistance was bottom-up. It was the poorer people that were the ones uh, who were the most radical and one of the most resistance. And it was the more affluent people out West who, if they joined the anti-excise movement, were being kind of dragged along by the more radical lower classes. So an early example of violent resistance occurred on September 11th, 1791, where a tax collector in Washington County in Western Pennsylvania was attacked and tarred and feathered. And then other attacks soon followed in the region and the tax was largely uncollected for the next year or so. And as these sorts of things began to happen, Washington and Hamilton, and Hamilton was, of course, kind of pulling Washington more in his direction during this time, they began to see this whole movement as going much more towards outright treason. So that same month, September of 1792, Alexander Hamilton wrote a very aggressive presidential proclamation, which Attorney General Edmund Randolph then rewrote, toning it down quite a bit. Uh, Washington then signed that version, and it was widely published. Now, even though it was toned down from Hamilton's first draft, it still was pretty tough. It declared that anyone who resisted or impeded the collection of the whiskey excise was, quote, subversive of good order, contrary to the duty that every citizen owes his country and to the laws and of a nature dangerous to the very being of government, end quote. Of course, to my ears, it sounds just like a proclamation that could have been hatched in London against the American colonies back in the 1760s. But what do I know? USA, USA, baby. Now, out on the frontier, despite this proclamation, vigilante actions continued both against tax collectors and also sometimes against anyone who cooperated or collaborated with them or helped them out in any way. So, for example, in November of 1793, anti-excise men broke into the house of a tax collector named Benjamin Wells in Fayette County. And at gunpoint, Wells was uh, forced to surrender his commission to them. And tension and resistance amped up in early 1794 when the federal government began serving subpoenas against non-paying distillers. And this just pissed off more people and caused even more resistance. One of the largest instances of vigilante action against taxpayers occurred on July 16, 1794. An armed, angry crowd of about 50 men went to the home of a man named John Neville. John Neville was a very wealthy Western Pennsylvanian. He was a staunch Federalist, and he was also the top excise taxman for Western Pennsylvania, and a man who'd been assisting the federal officials who were serving subpoenas against non-paying distillers. 
And this armed, angry crowd demanded that John Neville resign and turn over all of his records to them. Now, Neville refused, and a shootout occurred. Neville actually armed his slaves. He owned slaves. You could have slaves in Pennsylvania back then. He armed his slaves, and his slaves helped him defend the house. And in the shootout, five attackers were wounded, and one later died. No one died on on Neville's side. Um, I, I don't think anyone was even wounded, at least as far as I know. The next day, after this shootout, a much larger crowd, numbering several hundred, perhaps as many as 500 according to some sources, we don't know for sure, showed up at Neville's house. Neville, his slaves again, and now 11 soldiers who had come from Fort Pitt to help defend him, again defended Neville's house in a shootout against the angry crowd. During the shootout, Neville himself managed to sneak away and flee, and Sources are hazy and conflicting on casualties, but depending on what source, one or two attackers were killed and several defending soldiers were wounded. Um, One may have died from his wounds later, and a couple appear to have deserted and fled during the shootout. Again, this is all kind of hazy and conflicting as far as sources and accounts go. But for sure, one of the um, anti-excise men that was killed was a very popular local militia leader, and it caused a lot of anger that he was killed. I don't know if he was actually killed personally by uh, John Neville, but that was what a lot of the crowd was saying. Now, after a bit of a shootout, um, the remaining defenders in the house surrendered, and the mob burned down the home and the other buildings on the property. This incident became known as the Battle of Bower Hill because Bower Hill was the name of Neville's estate. Naturally, after this, things continued to escalate as far as anger and tension in western Pennsylvania. In August of 1794, you get the largest assemblage of men for resisting the the, um, excise tax in western Pennsylvania. About 7,000 opponents of the excise tax met at Braddock's Field outside Pittsburgh. Most of these guys, sources say, were poor and landless. And again, they were angry about the tax, but they were angry about a lot of other things, too. This was like, you know, a long train of abuses, right? But they were they were not unified on, on what the hell they were going to do. Some wanted to try and sack Pittsburgh. Um, many of them were of the mindset of we should just target anyone who's wealthy, uh, whether they actually have anything to do specifically with the federal tax or not. And some even spoke of declaring independence outright. There was talk of unifying Western Pennsylvania with the backcountry areas of some other states, you know, maybe some of Western Virginia, maybe some of uh, Kentucky or, or Western North Carolina or what have you. But it was mostly um, just, you know, talk. The crowd ended up not sacking Pittsburgh because, A, Pittsburgh's local leaders were very shrewd. They persuaded these protesters that the city was actually on their side, and they further ensured the crowd's goodwill by giving them a lot of casks of liquor. And B, some of the protesters' own leaders within the movement, who, again, still were more moderate, persuaded them not to go take and sack the city, but to simply have a protest march through town, which they did. Already, we see here, I think, why this rebellion ends up, plot spoiler, virtually evaporating in the face of government force when it shows up. It was incoherent, or maybe a better way to put it would be um, internally contradictory, on things such as their overall philosophy and their overall goals. Now, I'm all for decentralized organizations, as, as I've mentioned before, but there still has to be some type of animating, unifying philosophy and or clear goals, even for a decentralized starfish type organization. 
So in contrast to this whiskey rebellion movement, which falls apart, you know, at the drop of a hat, um, look at the sons of Liberty in the 1760s and seventies as a much more effective example of how to build a decentralized organization that still is unified in its ideas and its goals and so on. But um, Thomas Slaughter sums it up this way, talking about the Whiskey Rebel shortcomings and why it ultimately uh, fell apart. Quote, the Whiskey Rebellion lacked a coherent purpose. Theirs was an unthinking, uncalculated, emotional rebellion, doomed to collapse when tempers cooled, organized opposition appeared, or contingencies demanded sophisticated planning, end quote. So these rebels, they were really more akin to rioters than to revolutionaries. And rioters, no matter how angry and how violent they might be, are still generally seen by the state as no big deal to take care of because you just need a big enough hammer. You just need enough force and you can stop any riot when you want to. Revolutionaries, on the other hand, are much harder to stop because what's really happening with them is not angry emotions and things that are, you know, unorganized and incoherent and often misdirected. But true revolutionaries are motivated by ideas, whether good or bad. And ideas are a lot harder to kill or to terrorize into submission. Well, the crackdown was coming. By this time, Washington, who initially was a bit more restrained in what he wanted to do than Hamilton, Washington by this time had decided that he was definitely going to use overwhelming force Again, something for which Hamilton had been agitating for quite a while. Now, there wasn't really a big standing army of the federal governments yet at the time, but um, what they could do was federalize militia. There was a law in the books, a fairly recent law, the Militia Act of 1792, which said that the federal government could only mobilize and federalize militia if a Supreme Court justice certified officially that there was trouble somewhere that couldn't be handled just by the local authorities. So even though the governor of Pennsylvania was trying to persuade Washington at the time that a military invasion of Western Pennsylvania would make things worse, on August 4th, 1794, Supreme Court Justice James Wilson certified that federal military intervention was necessary in Western Pennsylvania. And three days later, Washington issued a proclamation that military force would be used in Western Pennsylvania. However, he also knew that for the sake of PR and for the sake of his reputation, he had to appear to be bending over backwards to avoid any military action. He had to appear to be just as reluctant as all get out to do what he had decided to do. So to that end, even as the administration was getting Justice Wilson's okay to mobilize an army, and even as the invasion was being planned, Washington sent a three-man commission consisting of the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, one of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court justices, and a senator from Pennsylvania to supposedly attempt to negotiate an end to the trouble in order to avert a military invasion. However, the commission wasn't given nearly enough time to accomplish anything, and while they were told to talk to the rebels in a conciliatory fashion, they weren't given any authorization to actually grant anything of substance to the rebels as far as demands go. And even as the supposed peace commission was heading out to go through the motions and pretend that the administration was trying so hard to avoid military action, 
Alexander Hamilton was publishing editorial letters in Philadelphia newspapers under the pseudonym of Tully, and these letters were inflammatory. They accused the rebels and anyone who resisted the federal tax of being traitors and anarchists who wanted to basically destroy American civilization. And of course, obviously, you can't negotiate and compromise with that kind of people, can you? And while this is going on, while the Peace Commission is going through its motions, the administration was already beginning the process of actually building the army, and they were doing their utmost to keep this army a secret for the time being. Now, why would you keep it a secret? Well, you don't want to contradict the PR story that you're trying so hard to avoid military action. Thomas Slaughter says this, quote, Washington and Hamilton wished to preserve the public appearance of their dedication to negotiations while privately abandoning the Pacific policy that they had adopted out of political necessity earlier in the month. The peace negotiations were a sham, but a necessary political maneuver to forestall criticisms of the administration's policy, end quote. Tax resistors in Western Pennsylvania, though, actually took the Peace Commission at face value and tried to negotiate in good faith. Of course, they got nowhere as far as substance goes, but the Peace Commission was in some ways succeeding in diffusing some of the anger. Now, the force that Washington built and dispatched into Pennsylvania was actually larger than any army he had commanded during the Revolutionary War. The force he built to crush the Whiskey Rebels was just under 13,000 men, consisting of militia from New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. Now, at Yorktown, the final real big military operation of the American Revolution, the American army under George Washington, counting both Continental regulars and militia, had totaled only about 11,000. So here he is setting up an army of almost 13,000 to invade America. It's true that at Yorktown there was a French force of maybe six or 7,000 helping as well, but still, that means as far as American armies go, looking only at American soldiers, the force that was dispatched to crush tax resistors in Pennsylvania was actually a bit larger than any American army that had ever been assembled to fight the Redcoats. Now, the army that suppressed the Whiskey Rebellion mostly consisted of dirt-poor conscripts, the officers who commanded it, though, were generally of the wealthier classes, the exact types of guys who owned government bonds, and many of them also owned real estate out west, and therefore had a direct personal financial stake in what was going on here. And there were plenty of people at the time, both in the West and even some of the so-called Friends of Liberty in the East, who saw the class problem here, that basically you're rich guys from the East are sending poor guys from the East to crush poor guys in the West. In his book on the Whiskey Rebellion, historian Thomas Slaughter quotes a Pennsylvania newspaper editorial that suggested sending an army consisting entirely of Eastern elitists would be a more morally acceptable uh, way to deal with it. In other words, why don't you send an army of just rich guys to do the dirty work? After all, they were the ones who were going to benefit by this operation. So this newspaper article uh, editorial said, quote, it is to be hoped that those who derive the most benefit from our revenue laws will be the foremost to march against the Western insurgents. Let stockholders, bank directors, speculators, and revenue officers arrange themselves immediately under the banners of the Treasury and try their prowess in arms, as they have done in calculation. End quote. Good point. Why don't you send the rich people out there to collect their own damn money? Well, after quoting that newspaper editorial, Thomas Slaughter adds his words, quote, Drafting the Eastern poor to fight the impoverished of the West seemed the ultimate hypocrisy 
to those who opposed the Federalist regime, end quote. So again, from the perspective of the Westerners, this is the situation. The same distant federal government that claims it doesn't have the wherewithal to protect you from hostile Indians or to help open up your access to the Mississippi River for your economic survival. Suddenly, this same federal government that can't seem to muster up any resources to help your problems, suddenly out of nowhere is able to conjure up a huge army by the standards of back then, bigger than any American army of the revolution, to come for you if you don't pay your taxes to them. Huh. Isn't that magical? Isn't that convenient? Sorry, we don't have enough soldiers to help you deal with the Indians or to make the Spanish open up New Orleans to you. What's that? You're not paying your taxes? Well, here's a huge fucking army. Now, by late September, early October of 1794, in part because of the Peace Commission and in part because they understood now what was happening, that a huge army was coming their way, many of the moderate leaders among the rebels began to urge the rebels to submit, to you know demobilize, to stop resisting, and so on. And in fact, much of the rebellion quickly dissipated by all measures. Only very small-scale sporadic violence continued to occur, and mostly it was just the case of, you know, poor ignorant wretches venting their angers against local elites. As a result, when Washington and Hamilton's massive army finally did show up in western Pennsylvania, it met no real violent resistance at all. Thomas Slaughter says this, quote, Submission replaced resistance in the popular vocabulary, end quote. But he then points out, quote, Simultaneously, with the Western country's newfound loyalty to the national government, came the president's announcement that the time for overtures of forgiveness had ended, end quote. So right as, right as the Whiskey Rebels were thrown in the towel is when the president says, all right, we have no choice, let's go invade. So there was virtually no, no real violence to speak of in terms of resistance when the army started marching westward in Pennsylvania, but the army itself did cause plenty of violence. This army of federalized militia conscripts was barely trained, was terribly equipped. A lot of the guys didn't even want to be there. And as a result, as you can imagine, the enlisted men were undisciplined and absolutely miserable. Though most of the officers, who were generally rich Easterners, were quite comfortable most of the time. As a result of their horrible situation in morale and discipline, the soldiers of this army plundered and pillaged local civilians as they marched into and through western Pennsylvania. In late September, the main force of the army reached Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is sort of central Pennsylvania. It's still, um, I believe, east of the mountains, not yet in the heart of rebel territory, but there's some rebel sentiment out there. And in Carlisle, some of the army began to go around rounding up willy-nilly some men who were suspected of raising a liberty pole, a symbol of protest, which again harkens back to the Sons of Liberty. And thus, these guys were sympathetic to the rebellion and had to be detained. One of the local civilians they went after was a very young man who was extremely ill. Not sure what he had, but the, the record says, you know, that he had some kind of serious debilitating illness, could barely stand. This guy protested that he was totally innocent, had nothing to do with any rebellion. And again, so sick he could barely stand. And after telling these people, hey, I'm sick, I'm innocent, leave me alone, he turned around to head back into his house. And at that point, a soldier ordered him to stop and lie down. And he was in the process of doing so when the officer who was pointing a pistol at him apparently accidentally squeezed the trigger, shot the guy and mortally wounded him. Thomas Slaughter writes of this quote, the youth who suffered an excruciating death from the wound to his groin was not complicit in the anti-excise activities. 
He had obeyed the guard to the best of his ability. The soldier had no intention of killing him, but was perhaps a bit trigger-happy and unused to handling the weapon, end quote. And a couple of days later in Myerstown, there was another fatal incident. There, some soldiers at a tavern were being verbally insulted by a drunken man named Charles Boyd. And after repeated insults, they tried to arrest Charles Boyd. Because I guess the First Amendment doesn't cover drunken insults at an army invading your town that you don't want to be there. Now, when the soldiers tried to arrest Boyd, apparently he physically resisted them, although he was armed, I think, only with a stick. And the soldier who was trying to arrest him bayoneted him to death. George Washington, on hearing of these incidents, expressed regret and had the soldiers responsible in both cases for the killings turned over to state authorities. But in both cases, they were quickly released with no charges. Now, on October 4th, Washington personally visited the army at Carlisle in basically a big PR stunt. This, to me, is comparable to George W. Bush's famous uh, mission accomplished landing, only this is taking place before rather than after military operations have commenced. And after visiting the troops and posing very gallantly in his finest getup and whatever at um, Carlisle, he then headed down to Fort Cumberland in Maryland, where another contingent of the army was being assembled and, and had his PR stunt, you know, his, his uh, what today we would call a photo op. Of course, back then they didn't have cameras yet, but basically his photo op there and then headed back to Philadelphia. Um, he left Virginia Governor Henry Lee in nominal command of the army, but he also left Hamilton there kind of in charge, too. In the words of Thomas Slaughter, quote, he also left Hamilton as an unofficial civilian head of the entire expedition, end quote. And as it turns out, Hamilton's really going to be running the show once these guys get out west of the mountains. Now, as the army began lumbering slowly over the mountains, logistics only got worse. The army got way ahead of its supplies, which weren't good to begin with. Very inadequately supplied in the first place, now we're ahead of our supplies. The men had to increasingly plunder civilians, their produce and livestock and so on for food. And at first, the leadership of the expedition tried to stop this, but then they realized it was necessary because their men had no food, and so they officially condoned it. By late October, early November, the army was into real uh, rebel territory west of the Appalachians in Pennsylvania. And of course, they still found nothing like any real opposition or resistance. So instead, they decided, well, since we're here, better, better round some people up. The army went around rounding up people willy-nilly on often the flimsiest of evidence or accusations, and then um, would detain them in horrific conditions while interrogating them with uh, Alexander Hamilton acting as like the chief interrogator. The largest of these roundups of civilians took place on November 13, when a bunch of cavalry raided people's homes, who I guess were on the equivalent back then of the no-fly list, and took about 150 civilians prisoner in the middle of the night, just raided their houses and grabbed them, you know, literally dragging them out of bed, um, you know, in their pajamas or whatever, and then marching them at a rapid pace miles and miles down the road to Pittsburgh, without even giving these guys the opportunity to properly dress for the cold night. It was a cold, sleeting night. So they're marching, in some cases, you know, seven, eight, nine miles to Pittsburgh in their pajamas through sleet. And there wasn't really any distinction made between those who were just being, you know, interviewed to get some local information and those who were genuine suspects. They were all treated the same way. Once they got to Pittsburgh, they were often stashed in terrible conditions. Uh, many of them were tossed into a muddy pen, which had like a livestock pen, which had no like roof or shelter of any kind. And again, this is a cold, sleety night. 
In the words of Thomas Slaughter, quote, Innocent and guilty, friends and foes of the government that now imprisoned them, endured the physical abuse and humiliation that accompanied it. Many had their health damaged or ruined, and at least one man died from exposure to the cold, end quote. Even though it was clear pretty quickly that many of those who had been rounded up had nothing to do with any rebellion, Hamilton was determined to get some scapegoats and throw their asses against the wall. He wanted some hangings. He wanted some men dead. Now, after interrogations, they ended up letting most of them go. They only held uh, 20 men. Most of those they held were very poor. Many of those that they held, of these 20 men that they hung on to, were people who were described by their neighbors in various ways as being, let's just say, not the brightest bulbs in town. And as far as can be ascertained, none of those who were held were actually leaders of any rebellion. But these 20 men were marched in the winter from Pittsburgh back across the mountains to Philadelphia, marched by soldiers who abused them the entire way and who were told to keep their swords out and ready and to decapitate any of the prisoners who tried to make a run for it. Not surprisingly, I don't think any of them did try to make a run for it. But, you know, do you want to be marched from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia in, in winter by guys with swords who, you know, are ready to hack you up if you try to go anywhere? Now, once they arrived in Philadelphia, the prisoners were then humiliatingly paraded through the town, including past the president's house, whereas Thomas Slaughter notes, I think sardonically, quote, the great man emerged to bask in the glory of the moment, end quote. In his book, Hamilton's Curse, Thomas Lorenzo does a great job summing up how things turned out, quote, Hamilton ordered local judges to render guilty verdicts against the 20 men who were eventually imprisoned, and he wanted all guilty parties to be hanged. But only 12 individuals went to trial. Two men were convicted, and George Washington pardoned them both to the extreme disappointment of his young Treasury secretary. So the whiskey rebels prevailed. They did not pay the whiskey tax. No one was successfully prosecuted. And once Jefferson became president, the hated whiskey tax, along with most other excise taxes, was abolished, end quote. Interestingly, Washington himself later wrote something, I can't remember if it was a letter or a journal, to the effect that basically in his mind, the timing of the rebellion had been fortunate because it had allowed the new federal government to basically make a spectacle to demonstrate to the American people and to the world that the, the new American federal government, only a few years old at this point, is in charge. It means business. It's a leviathan. Don't try to stop it. And of course, you know, he pardoned those guys, the, the two who were actually convicted out of this whole thing, right? Thousands of people resisted the tax. They ended up only arresting 20 of them, and only two of them ended up being convicted. Like, wow, that's you, you guys are really, um, you know, re really out there getting the troublemakers, aren't you? Right. And Washington pardons the two guys who were convicted. Why? Because it allows him to still keep his PR image as this wonderful, uh, super duper fair and honest and not self-interested, you know, grandfatherly figure. And of course, George Washington and other wealthy Eastern real estate speculators benefited directly, personally, financially from crushing the resistance in the West because this led to an increase in real estate values, in part uh, due to the stability it created. Thomas Slaughter says that Washington's personal real estate portfolio of Western land increased in value by about 50% in the years after the Whiskey Rebellion. So it's this mixed ending. A lot of frontier areas continued to just ignore the excise tax on whiskey, 
So in a way, they kind of won. But on the other hand, you know, the wealthy speculators got their way, too, for the most part. They may not have gotten their way in every Western area on the tax itself, but they still were in charge. Uh, Many of them profited financially from the whole thing. Many frontiersmen continued to push further west because of things like this. And while one of the motivations that we always hear about was the desire for new land, Um, What's often overlooked on the part of those who were constantly pushing west throughout the 19th century was the desire on the part of certain types of people to just get the hell away from the clutches of the federal leviathan. When you look at the people, the, the real like, you know, first settlers and mountain men and whatever that were always at the edge of the frontier throughout American history during that century. Very few of them ever even remotely got rich. Very few of them, I think, expected that they were going to get wealthy from going out on the frontier. What a lot of them really just wanted more than anything else was to be left alone, to be independent, to take care of themselves and then, you know, in turn, not have to pay taxes. Their attitude was, okay, you know, federal government, if you don't want to help me, that's fine. But then don't come and and try and take some of my money for your functions if you're not even helping me often overlooked factor in Western expansion is people voting with their feet to get further away from the the nose of the federal government trying to control everything and tax everything and regulate everything. But I think the key here, though, is that the precedent of the federal government being willing and able to use overwhelming force to crush any real resistance to its edicts had been established. Thermidor had been reached Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, and as Thucydides said, and as I discussed back in episode 46, the strong do what they will, and the weak suffer what they must. George Washington might not have literally been a bloodthirsty cannibal, as depicted in the story of the Washingtonians, but I think Bentley Little's larger point about history and about how we perceive great men and about how most historians, other than the few honest ones like the fictional one in the story played by Saul Rubinek and uh, people like yours truly, um, other than a handful of mavericks like us, most historians, whether they realize it or not, are, are just sort of playing the part of covering things up again even if they're not doing it consciously they're they're leaving things out that contradict the image of the powers that be thank you for listening as always i sincerely hope i have not wasted the time that you've been kind enough to spend listening to me if you have comments or questions that are relevant to this particular episode please feel free to leave them in the comment section for the episode at my website profcj.org that's profcj.org also you can email me with any questions or comments or whatever feedback at the email address profcj at profcj.org also consider connecting with the show on facebook and twitter and consider subscribing to the show if you don't already in places like itunes stitcher the various apps and so on a lot of different ways you can subscribe to the show available on my website if you like the show want to help it out remember there's lots of ways you you can help one of them doesn't cost anything uh, other than maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show about the dangerous history podcast in any way uh, you have available to you to people you think might appreciate it You might also consider leaving a review or even just a rating in places like iTunes and Stitcher in order to encourage other people to give the show a listen. And remember, you can also help the show financially. Um, I very much appreciate it. It's a huge help to me in running the show, growing the show, improving it, and so on. You can donate directly. Go to profcj.org slash donate, and you'll see you can donate there via PayPal, or you can also donate Bitcoin. 
Or you can help out the show financially by purchasing items from Amazon.com by first going through the affiliate links found on my website. When you do that at no additional cost to you, I get a little cut from Amazon's end of the deal. So again, huge thank you to everyone who's donated to the show or who has bought from my Amazon links recently. This has been very helpful. And also huge thank, thank you to um, several of you who've really been doing a lot of work helping to spread the word of the show. I very much appreciate it. This has been Prof. CJ, your one-man revolution, your renaissance man in the new dark age, your guerrilla scholar warrior, doing my utmost to help you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.